Father, thanking you now for this day. And while on a Lord's Day we can't always understand the purposes for the wintry conditions that we experienced late last night and into the morning hours, you're sovereign. Father, we pray your hand upon all these services and upon the live stream that's taking place. That you'll speak to hearts, meet the needs, and draw each and every one into your presence. You know the needs that are here. You know the struggles that are being faced. You see tears on pillows late at night. Nobody else sees but you alone. You know the hurting spirit. You know the hardened heart. Minister to that hurting spirit and soften that hardened heart. And allow, Father, your grace to be so overwhelming, so powerful. You're moving in that soul, leading that person onward towards you. So, Father, these are your words your inspired words, God-breathed words. Each and every word, each and every phrase comes from you and is meant to honor you. So, Father, we're praying now once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. Because again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one of the amazing stories in history of devotion to Jesus Christ. The time was A.D. 320. The place was in what's now known as Zilvis, Turkey. And the question was, would the Christian soldiers bow and would they obey a pagan god? We pick it up where the governor in that sector of the Roman Empire stood firm. He had good and strong warriors before him. He needed them. But he's got to bring them in a line. I told you I am here to make absolutely certain that you sacrifice to the emperor. One of the soldiers answered on behalf of the rest and said, we will not sacrifice. To do so is to betray our faith in Christ. But what about your soldiers, your fellow colleagues? Consider you and you alone of Caesar's troops defy him. Think of the disgrace you're going to bring upon your legion. How can you do this? And then this classic response, the disgrace, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, would be more terrible still. The writer tells us a note of exasperation crept into the governor's voice. Give up this stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. What we've been describing week by week is that there's this tension between what the apostles are experiencing in terms of the government within that region and their loyalty to their sovereign God. A tension of authority. 
The government is lowercase authority. God is uppercase authority. The problem occurs when people attempt to flip the two. What I want to do with you now as we continue on in this story is to draw out what I consider to be three significant insights here that the apostles provide you and provide me when it seems as though God's authority is being resisted. And the first comes out of 27 through 32. That when God's ultimate authority is resisted by lower authorities, I want you to start with me now by noting the unique opportunities that are offered to believers. This looks like a tremendous obstacle to the apostles for presenting the gospel and advancing the faith. But what others might view as an obstacle, God views as an opportunity. Watch what happens. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. These are the ones that had sentenced Jesus Christ to death. The high priest now, in his priestly garments, is questioning, challenging, scrutinizing the apostles. And he questions them. And in 28, he states, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And our mind goes back again to what was stated in that scene from 320 A.D., to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be more terrible still. But then the governor said, give up this stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. And then would add, in his name, I order you to do so. Now, the apostles at this point are being confronted with something with regard to this name. You and I are told that later on, the apostle Paul, as he's reflecting upon God's sovereignty and God's authority as revealed through Jesus Christ, would share these words about that point still to come. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't it interesting at this point that the authorities there in Jerusalem can't even utter the name of Jesus? They're avoiding making it personal, aren't they? kind of want to keep Jesus at a distance. You ever bump into people like that? Well, no. Keep them anonymous. It's in this name you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And then make a very unique statement from this situation. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I can imagine at this point the apostles are smiling. Because when Jesus was on trial and he stood before Pilate, Pilate then would stand before the crowds and say, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And we are told in Matthew 27 that all the people answered, his blood 
be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. What is it that the Sanhedrin, the authorities, say at this point? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us when they, in essence, at Jesus' trial, said, let the blood be upon us. Well, no. What's Peter going to say? You pick it up in verse 29. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, now they're putting authority in its proper place. They are saying the government authorities are lowercase authorities. God is uppercase authority, and you can't confuse. You can't blend. You've got to maintain the distinction between the two. It's derived in God, delegated to humanity, and then to substantiate the fact that God has ultimate say. God is sovereign. God has authority. Notice now what he does next. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. I can imagine Peter now pausing at that point because the Sadducees, who are part, the main part of the council, do not believe in the resurrection. And furthermore, they were at the forefront of having put Jesus Christ to death. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. My mind goes back to the story of Lajos Ordas, who had ministered in Hungary, and he was put in prison for being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he tells his story, they placed me in solitary confinement. It was a tiny cell, perhaps six feet by eight feet, with no windows, soundproof. They hoped to break down my resistance by isolating me from all sensory perceptions, and they thought that I was alone. They were wrong. The risen Savior... Jesus Christ filled me with the sense of his presence. And in communion with him, I was able to prevail. And then added, this is the victory of faith over the world. When I watch the faith on full display here, and when you find yourself being resisted in any way, shape, or form, and it seems as though life has become so overwhelming when you see all the obstacles, consider the unique opportunities that God's being able to present you with because there is where your testimony will be recognized and heard. They go on the record. We must obey God rather than men. They're succinct. They're courageous. They're honest. And then they root their statement in the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And draw the authorities into a sense of accountability. And then in verse 31, goes on to say, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And it almost seems as if, well, once again, Peter's been reflecting upon the scriptures, hasn't he? Because in Psalm 110, what we find is that in that messianic promise, God had said that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And they would have known exactly what Peter was driving at at that point. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now you've got to love that at that point, the way in which they stand strong and they stay together in the midst of it all. This anecdote that comes out of the Revolutionary War time period, at the signing of the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock, one of the signatories, said, we must be unanimous. We must all hang together. And Benjamin Franklin replied, we must indeed all hang together. Or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Well, now, here you will see that at this point, there is this oneness of spirit. The apostles are drawing strength from one another, encouragement from one another, courage from one another. They're a united front. And when a church is the church, and it's at the cutting edge of ministering effectively within a large region, no matter what the conditions might be, there's a sense of unity because you understand where there is true authority. It is found in the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. So no matter what you're experiencing right now in your own personal life and the obstacles you face, the obstacles you are facing could be seriously disguised as tremendous opportunities to be addressed. Seize the opportunity, though others view it as an obstacle, and then give yourself the opportunity to be able to share who Christ is and what Christ has done for you and for his glory. Now, once you've done that, and you understand the unique opportunities offered to believers, you're on to the second insight that these, these apostles are offering you in their very difficult time. That when God's ultimate authority is resisted by lower authorities, note second of all with me, the unlikely assistance given to believers. Not only the unique opportunities offered to believers, but the unlikely assistance given to believers because sometimes God is going to go about and surprise you by bringing somebody into your life or some circumstance into your life to be able to be equipped to do what otherwise you didn't think you could do. And so you're up to verse 33. Now the council looks at Peter and John and the other apostles at this point, and when they heard this, they're enraged. Furthermore, you and I are told they wanted to kill them, and they are perfectly capable. They put Jesus Christ to death, you know, on that cross. But now I want you to spot with me the unlikely assistance that happens when you live faithfully for Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the most challenging times you find yourself in. Somebody might appear on the scene who otherwise might seem an obstacle to you when in reality is presenting you with further opportunity, opportunity for you. In this case, it's a man by the name of Gamaliel. In verse 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, speaking of the apostles, outside for a little while. Now, you would assume at that point that's bad news. Maybe they're going to sentence us to death would be the assumption now being made. 
This is a highly respected Pharisee. He carries weight. He's got clout. He's got authority. What is he going to say? And how is this going to impact things? Now here's what fascinates us all the more. This man by the name of Gamaliel was a mentor of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul. Was Saul of Tarsus present when Gamaliel gets up to speak? Later, the Apostle Paul, when he would be himself put on trial, would say in Acts chapter 22, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. This is the sort of men now that is standing up in the council and people are listening. Is Saul of Tarsus there? Is Saul listening? And how is this going to shape Saul's view of the present and the future? Read on. In the very next verse, we're told, he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. You can almost hear a pin drop. What he will do next is to draw not one, but two examples from Jewish history of things that need to be understood in light of what they're facing. First example. Before these days, Thetis rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, came to nothing. I can almost see they're nodding their heads at this point. Yeah, I can see where you're going with this, Gamaliel. Beginning to make sense. But then a second. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. What are you going to do with this? Now he's going to build a bridge in his argumentation from the past into a present. And so he says in the next verse, so in the present case, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And I thought about this when I was reading about what has just been established in terms of the latest in China. We're striking the final blow to religious liberty with new administrative measures set to take place in February with total submission to the Chinese Communist Party. A watchdog group reports, the country's state-run media announced the new administrative measures for religious groups on December 30th. One of the most well-known leaders in the house church movement 
was sentenced to nine years in jail for inciting subversion of state power, raising concern for all Chinese Christians. Bitter Winter, a watchdog group on religious liberty and human rights in China, said the situation is going from bad to worse. The only religion allowed is faith in the Chinese Communist Party. They write, what's God going to do? God has a way of overcoming lower authority with his sovereign upper authority. So now, here's Gamaliel. Interestingly enough, he says, God is sovereign in essence. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And now you begin to wonder, what's God doing? How's God working? And God has strategically positioned Gamaliel to offer surprising counsel to force the people to rethink what they are about to do. Had they put them to death, well, then it would have stymied the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ on the streets of Jerusalem. But on the other hand, God then utilizes this Gamaliel, and they will not put them to death. The result is they're going to go back on the streets, and the gospel is going to continue to spread. And this is exactly how God is at work. Meanwhile, then, ponder the significance of the way in which God delights to surprise people and the way in which he looks out over his own. There's Shifram Pua in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 through 21. Standing up to the Pharaoh of Egypt when he wants to have baby boys put to death. And then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And they've been cast into this furnace when all of a sudden we're told, Nebuchadnezzar's astonished, rose up in haste, declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. God produces unlikely assistance. You can't expect it. You can't anticipate it. You can't manufacture it. But when it comes, you honor God for it. And you ask then, God, what do you want me to do in light of this? Well, now, here are the apostles. They've been put on notice. They're being told you can't continue to share the gospel. How are they going to respond to all this? In verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. The beating would consist of 39 lashes and then charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. What are you going to do when that has just taken place? 
it leads you and leads me then to this third of the three insights that God's providing through the apostles in their courageous stance of living for Jesus, that when God's ultimate authority is resisted by lower authorities, you note not only the unique circumstances, the unique opportunities offered to believers, and the unlikely assistance given to believers, but now mark this, the joyful spirit distinguishing the believers. They've just been flogged. They left the presence of the council. And note how it reads. Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for what? The name. And meanwhile, those soldiers, centuries later, would be able to say, to disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is more terrible still. And then the lowercase authorities will say, give up the stubborn folly. You have no Lord but Caesar. In his name I say, obey. And now notice what they do. They rejoice. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And so how do they go about demonstrating their joy? Look at the wording. Every day, not periodically, every day in the temple, that's the gathered setting. That's where the masses come together, the growing numbers of believers, and from house to house. That's the scattered setting, the house church movement. They did not cease what? Teaching and literally evangelizing, that's the word, the Greek word behind this, that Christ is Jesus. And you pull all that together, and then you might smile when you begin to think about what God is doing, what God is saying, how God is impacting this particular situation. I was sitting in the front row at Parkside Church when I was an intern pastor years ago. And the pastor that I was trained under, Dr. Walk Hansen, had Richard Vembrandt come to speak to the congregation. Vembrandt had been beaten continuously by the communists for having put faith and trust in Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel in his native land. In his book on pain of being severely beaten, Sharing the gospel with other prisoners was forbidden. Quote, A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege, Van Brandt said. So we accepted their terms. A brutal sharing of the gospel? No. A brutal beating. For sharing the gospel. It was a deal. We shared. They beat us. We were happy sharing. They were happy beating. Everybody was happy. The following scene took place more times than I can remember, he went on to say. A brother would be sharing the gospel to other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room, and after what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back through him, bruised and bloody, on the prison floor, 
And slowly he picked his battered body up, painfully straightened his clothing, and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And then he continued sharing the gospel. And I remember sitting in the row, watching, observing, listening as Richard Vim brought this, sharing story after story after story. How difficult it was for him to get up when he was done speaking due to the injuries that he had suffered in the midst of his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the prison system. My mind went back to this Acts passage. And there you see how God has taken what could be a tremendous obstacle and presented opportunities then to be able to say, but I obey God rather than men. Unlikely assistance to equip you to be able to minister in ways you never dreamed of. All of a sudden, a Gamaliel in your life appears on the scene and says something you didn't anticipate would happen. And the result is you demonstrate in the midst of the most difficult situations you find yourself in a joyous spirit to be able to communicate even more so the fact that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. And that's why these 40 soldiers were able to stand strong because they found their inspiration in the midst of the disciples of Jesus Christ who are loyal to the risen one, Christ, Savior, and Lord. Let's stand together. Father, you do remarkable things. And you delight in taking people such as the people of this congregation and sometimes putting us in what we consider to be extreme situations where the natural tendency is to back off, find our own upper room, rethink. But then we see apostles such as these who view such difficulties as unique opportunities. Find out they've got a sovereign God who produces unlikely assistance. And then offer a, a, a joyful spirit in the midst of the difficulties of life. Maybe there's someone here comes here today, Father, and joy is not exactly what's on the mind and on the heart. So overwhelmed by whatever it is they're facing. Speak to that heart now. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. May they find a renewed strength, a refreshed attitude, and a new orientation to take on life, knowing that Christ is risen and he is their Lord. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.